My first ministry, there was a colonel in our church, Colonel Hubert Burke. Guy looked just like John Wayne and uh, very colonel-y as uh, you interacted with him. He would always say to us young, wet-behind-the-ears pastors, if you have a name, say it with authority. Everybody will believe that's the way to say it. So. <laughs> a little... Uh, little insight there on how to approach those difficult names in Scripture. Well, today we are going to be looking into the name, the Most High God. We see it repeated here in Genesis chapter 14. As a matter of fact, that's where we're introduced to this name. And it's a name that communicates important truths to us once again about God. When we think about God, sometimes there's a temptation to try and bring him down to a level to where we feel comfortable with God. We feel that that's the best way to relate to God. If I can diminish my view of him, then somehow he's more relatable. Let me share this with you. That is wrong thinking. When we look to God, we should never attempt to define him ourselves. Nor should we try to soften what God has said about himself. If I really want to know God, I need to look to the person that God has identified, the deity that he has revealed in Scripture. And I have to build my understanding of who God is on what God has said about himself. I can't discover God through intellectual reasoning. I can't discover God through what others might say about him. I have to look to God himself and see what God has written in his word about who he is and about what he does. That is the only way that we can really understand who God is in its fullness and in its truth. So that's what we want to do today as we look into this title, El Elyon, or the Most High God. Now, as we do each week, first of all, we're going to look at the revelation concerning the name Most High God. And we're going to drill down here in the book of Genesis, chapter 14, starting at verse 17, where we're going to first of all see that this name, El Elyon, has to do with the superiority of God. That God is greater than anyone or anything. His superiority is revealed throughout Scripture. Again, that tendency that we might have to bring God down to a level to where He's more comfortable for us is misguided. Because God wants us to understand that as the Most High God, He is above everyone and everything. When we look at it, we see that he is the most high God of heaven and earth. What he's expressing in that statement is that he is over the seen, those things that are here of earth, and the unseen, whether it's the heavens and the galaxies that are beyond the scope of our sight, or whether it's the angelic and demonic beings that are a part of the spiritual world, God as God most high is superior to them all. Now, when we pick it up here in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, we see the story of Abram. In the 12th chapter of Genesis, Abram was called of God out of what would be modern-day Iraq. 
And he was calling him to the land that now is occupied by Israel, but beyond those borders. Basically, Abraham had to respond to the call of God in obedience and go at the word of the unseen God to a land that he had never seen as well. He had to trust the superior nature of God. There's a story of God providing for Abram. There was a famine. He went to Egypt. While in Egypt, he unscrupulously cheated the Pharaoh. So it shows that God is even good in spite of us. And then he comes back to the land of Canaan. And in that region, he and Lot have been enriched greatly. And they look upon the area, and because of their wealth and the number of animals in their herds, they decide to part company, and Abram gives Lot an option. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. The scripture reveals that, sought, that, that Lot looked on Sodom and saw the richness of the plain and the richness of the cities, and he went toward that now infamous city, Sodom, while Abram remained in the other area. What we find, though, is that Lot's choice brought about an event that required Abram's intervention under the direction and guidance of God. When we pick it up in the 14th chapter, there was a battle, and there were a bunch of kings that were a part of an alliance that decided that they would go against Sodom and Gomorrah and two other cities. And when they came and swooped down on Sodom, guess what happened? Lot was captured by these four kings and all of his possessions went with those four kings. So what did Abram do? Abram went against much larger odds and in his battle with these kings of these various cities, Lot was set free. Abram delivered Lot and all of his wealth. And that's where we pick it up in verse 17. As we come to this verse, we find that Moses is writing about this in the book of Genesis after the victory of Abram. And he says this, and his return from the defeat of Tetralamor, the king who went with him, the king of Sodom, he went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. So here's the image. Abram was in an alliance, believe it or not, with the king of Sodom. And so they're victorious. Lot is delivered. All of the things that had been garnered by Chedorlaomer, and by the way, I just remember it by Cheddar because he was after the Cheddar. But at any rate, this king is now at the hands of Abram and the king of Sodom. 
he's been dispatched. In the ancient Near East, when you went to war and you prevailed, guess what happened? You got the possessions of the people that you conquered. And so when we come to this, there's, after the battle, this treaty that is being entered into and reckoning where they were going to take all of the goods that had been captured and distribute them. And so we find Abram talking to the defeated king, but also the king of Sodom where his brother, Lot, had been found. But you know what's truly remarkable in this text is we find the introduction of another king. And that king's name is found in verse 18, and the king's name is Melchizedek. Now, when we look in Scripture, Melchizedek is only mentioned a few times. Here, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110 to be exact, and then, believe it or not, in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, in the seventh chapter, who was Melchizedek? The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And here's something remarkable about Melchizedek. He was the king of Salem. Now, we look at this, and that doesn't mean too much to us, but do you know what the ancient city of Salem became? Jerusalem. And so he's the king of Jerusalem. And what's truly remarkable is he was not only a king, but he was a priest. And so when Abram appears before Melchizedek, what he's doing is setting the stage as far as God's plan for a picture of one who will be king of Jerusalem, the righteous one of Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus Christ. A beautiful foreshadowing. And you know the scripture does this often. It gives us images of something that God has planned through the ages and will be found in a person much later. That is the case that we find here with Melchizedek. Now notice it says that Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. Now there are some that have tried to read communion into this and I don't think that's the case. The bread and wine were brought out often to ratify an agreement between the ancient Near Eastern kings. But here's the idea that we really need to focus on. Melchizedek was entering into this time of thanking Melchizedek, the ruler of Salem, or Jerusalem as we know it. And in honoring him, he honored the Most High God. Because look carefully at that 18th verse. It says of Melchizedek, he was a priest of God Most High. Now this is the first time we encounter this name, God Most High, when we look in Scripture. And what it's saying in this is he was one who precedes the priestly class of the Israelites. The Levites were a tribe that were descendants of Abram. 
And as a tribe, the Levites had the role of being the priests of Israel. But what we find here is there was a priest before the Levites and Aaron and that whole priestly class that would be a descendant of Abraham. And that was this priest, Melchizedek. What we find as we look at this, as the Word of God introduces us to Melchizedek, is he is a priest of the Most High God. He is a priest of the one true God. And so we're introduced with that term. Look as the text continues. This priest, Melchizedek, blessed him, referring to Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Now when we look at this description of God as the Most High, first of all, we see him as the possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, God is over heaven and earth, over the seen and the unseen. God is over all. He is God Most High. But then notice verse 20 goes on to say this, And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. God's sovereign control over this earth is brought out in this text. Because it wasn't Abram's military prowess that brought about success. It was God Most High. He is the one who controls the outcomes. He is the one who has a purpose and a plan that is realized. God Most High sees to his plan succeeding. When we look back at chapter 12, we find that God had promised Abram that because he followed him, because he responded to his call, that he would bless those who bless Abram and curse those who curse Abram. Here, God was demonstrating blessing as well to Abram as the Most High God. And the text goes on to say this in the 20th verse, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now this is where many believe the tithe originated, even prior to the law. A tithe is 10%. And what Abram was doing in worshiping God was giving a tithe to God's representative, the priest, in worship of the Father. And so he recognized the position of this king, but he also recognized the importance of honoring God. And then in verse 21, it goes on to say this, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So often when there was a conquering that took place, the defeated would become slaves. And then all of the goods would be distributed amongst the soldiers who had fought the battle. The lion's share, of course, would go to the king. What the king of Sodom was saying to Abram was, let's divvy it up. Look at Abram's response. Verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord most high God, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. What the Word of God is telling us in this text is Abram understood 
who brought goodness into his life. And it's God. He didn't want to share credit between God and a human benefactor. And so he had made a promise to the Most High God, the one who is superior above all others. And he remained loyal to that promise. You know, there's an important insight in this for us. When we promise God something as the Most High God, we should honor the promise and not fear men. Abraham feared God more than he feared offending the king of Sodom or anyone else. And so he made his promise to God and he kept it. Why? Because his view of God was bigger than his view of anyone or anything else. Wouldn't it have been tempting for Abram to say, oh, more money, more power, more wealth? He didn't say that because he revered the Most High God. One other story. Leave your finger in Genesis and turn to the book of Daniel. Now, a big book right in front of Daniel is the book of Ezekiel. So if you find Ezekiel, keep going. And in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, we come across another story. It's the story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. When we look in the scripture, Nebuchadnezzar was a king that was over the then known world to Daniel and his contemporaries. The Babylonian Empire spread with power and strength. And Nebuchadnezzar was the head of the Babylonian Empire. But we find an interesting story in the fourth chapter of Daniel. This despot, King Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream. And in that dream, it was disturbing. He dreamed of a large tree where birds came and roosted in the branches of the tree. And the tree was cut down and an iron band and a brass covering or copper covering were put over the stump of the tree so that it wouldn't grow back. And this dream greatly disturbed Nebuchadnezzar. He called all of his wise men in, dream interpreters. None of them could figure it out. And then Daniel was called. And he spoke to Nebuchadnezzar. And he told Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of the dream. That even though he was king over this empire, he would be set aside for seven years. He would lose his mind. And then he would return as king. You know what we find? That happened. And in Daniel chapter 4, we find the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar himself. In the second verse of that fourth chapter, it says, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Now that is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. He says, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This is the most powerful man in the world, recognizing that the Most High God, 
El Elyon is more powerful than any. And then it's in that 25th or 24th verse that we find Daniel give testimony of the greatness of God. O king, it is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king that you should be driven from among men and that your dwelling be with the beasts of the field. You will be like made to eat grass like the ox and you will be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives to whomever he will. Now our insight in finding this name Most High God in this text is pointing again to the fact of the control of the Most High God. That he is superior to every king, to every imagination that a person has, that he is superior to all. And so that's our takeaway from this name. When we see Most High God, think in terms of the one who is greater than all. The one who has control over earth and heaven, over the seen and the unseen. This is the Most High God. But you know, we find this name appear in other texts in Scripture. And when we look at some of the other passages where El Elyon, the Most High God, is referenced, we see something else about our God. We see that due to His power and His authority, He is able to help His people. The temptation would be to see the Most High God and think, He's too big to be concerned about me. What would the Most High God care about me? Why would He give me a thought? You know what we find in Scripture? The Most High God can be and should be called upon because He supplies what His people need. Look at Psalm 91. I love this psalm. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High God will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Isn't that a great passage of Scripture? It pictures for us shelter by God Almighty during our times of difficulty, during our times of fear. God is there, and we are in the shadow of the Almighty. He's our refuge and fortress. A refuge is a place that you run to when you're in trouble. That's our God. He is our fortress. That is our strength so that we can remain steadfast and take our stand. This is God most high presented in Scripture. Look at this psalm. I cry out to the God, to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Now, let that just sink in for a minute. Do you know that God has a purpose for you? The things in our life that happen where we struggle and suffer are not random. It is a part of the most high's plan for us. 
And we can go to him and find the strength that we need to make it through what he has determined and decreed to be a tough time. And we can give praise to him during those times that are times of blessing and goodness and give thanks to him. Look at verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. David wrote this during a time of fleeing and persecution. And he counted on God and his strength. Something else about the Most High God. It reveals that God saves his people. When we go back to Genesis chapter 14, I want to hearken back to Melchizedek. We mentioned him earlier as the king of righteousness and the king who blessed Abram. But you know we find Melchizedek in other passages of Scripture. There's a Scripture in the book of Psalms, chapter 110, that says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what's the context of this text? Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm, meaning it is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. One of the important aspects of the Messiah is he is a prophet and he is a priest and he is a king. Jesus fulfills all three of those roles. Melchizedek pictured for us one who is a king and a priest. And when Jesus came to earth, he was born in the lineage of Judah. He had to be in the lineage of Judah in order to be a king. You see, it was through Judah that God had made a promise that a king would come. But you know what? There was a problem. The Lion of Judah had a curse. And so Jesus had to be adopted by one who was from the Lion of Judah, Joseph, but born through a physical descendant of David through Mary. Ever wondered why the accounts in Matthew and Luke are different? Because one traces the lineage of Mary, one traces the lineage of Joseph. Why the discrepancy? So that Jesus could be born a physical descendant of David to keep his promise, but one who was not directly related through Joseph's line, but adopted. This is how Jesus becomes the legal king over Israel. But there's something else. God had also cursed the line of priests, the lineage of the Levites. He's born as a king through his lineage to Judah, but in order to be Messiah, he has to be a prophet and a priest and a king. And so what did God do? God makes him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, brought out right here in the book of Psalms 110. This prophecy was fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that have to do with us, you might ask? When we look in Scripture, we find Hebrews chapter 7, and I would encourage you to read this later. 
goes into a great deal of detail about Melchizedek. And you know what it says? It says that Jesus is a priest forever after the line of Melchizedek. And what is brought about by his association with this? Hebrews 7.25 climaxes the whole argument. And this is what it means for us. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is the role of a priest? To represent the individual to God. You know what the scripture is saying? That Jesus, being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, lives forever to be our intercessor, our go-between, our mediator between us and God. God the Most High provided our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, giving us a glimpse of what he would be like in Genesis 14 with Melchizedek, but completely fulfilled in Hebrews chapter 7 with the person of Christ. Now, I know we're going into some deep matters this morning, so let's back off for just a little bit, and let's talk about our response to these truths. If God is God most high, if he is the one who is over heaven and earth, if he is the one who, who supplies our need, if he is the one who, who saves us, how should I respond to God? Number one, we need to serve God above all others. You know, because God is God most high, does it make sense to elevate anything else above God? Basically, if I serve or love someone or something more than God, I have devalued God most high, and I need to see him as the most important one in my life. I need to serve him above all others, I need to put into perspective who he is and what everything else and who everyone else is. I need to serve God above all others. Isaiah wrote the following. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Even as great as God is, when I humble myself before God, God dwells with me. Lowliness means I have me and everything else in perspective, and I have God most high in perspective as well. It's all about our outlook, because our outlook will determine our outcome. So we need to see God as God most high. Something else. When we look in the word of God, we also consider if God is God most high, then I need to seek God whenever there's a need. Aren't we tempted sometimes to look through every other resource that we can possibly look for? And then when all of our options run out, we turn to God and say, oh God, Help me, please. Guess what? 
Turn to God first. Seek God during your time of need. When we look in scriptures, we, we, we find that God Most High never becomes weary. I've actually heard some Christians say, you know, I don't want to pray about this. It's a small matter, and God's so busy. He's not really concerned. He's got a world to run. Why should he listen to me? Well, guess what? You're invited in God's word to come to him, and you're being short-sighted about the power of God. God never becomes weary. He never has a chain supply issue. <laughs> right? God has everything. As the Most High God, we need to turn to Him and seek Him in our need. Two passages of Scripture, both from the Psalms. For the King trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, He shall not be moved. You want to be steadfast? Make God the focal point of your life. Psalm 57, I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. I wanted to bring that verse out once again because it shares with us God's accessibility. When you're in need, cry out to God. Look to Him as the Most High God. Final thought. When we look at our response to the truth that God is God most high, we can steadfastly hold on to his promises. We all experience people who make great promises and don't deliver. Many have been disappointed by the promise of a parent or a politician who makes a promise and they say, wow, that's, that's a great promise, that's awesome. I'm going to really count on that. And then what happens? The rug is pulled out from under you. And you find that I can't count on that promise. You know what we find in God's Word? God is good on His promises. And that gives us the ability to remain steadfast. When I look into the Word of God and I see a promise of God, I can cling to it and I can say, this is God's truth. I will count on it. I will rely on it. I will remain steadfast. The psalmist in Psalm 92 says this, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Our life should be a life of praise, constantly looking to the Lord Most High and singing praises to His name because of who He is. Father, thank You for this text. Thank You for the reminder that we are given in this text that you are most high God. May we never diminish you. May we always run to you and cling to your promises. And may we always count on your provision for salvation. That even in the first book of the Bible is laid out for us by the way that you provide glimpses of what Jesus would be when he would come. 
How we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.